Hello, my friends. Welcome back to yet another episode of In Defense of Liberation, the show that is working towards and educating about a true people's liberation movement and one day soon a true proletarian revolution. But until that day comes, I am your host, Josh, and I'd like to say thank you so much for stopping by. If this is your first time stopping by, I'd like to say, again, from the bottom of my heart, thank you so much. Um, This is a show that I really began in a lot of cases because I had no one to talk to, and I needed a place to really work through my thoughts. So if this show, you know, poses any kind of educational, informative, or even, you know, entertaining uh, content, that's more than what I was you know, even expecting it to be, so that's exciting, Um, but if this is you coming back, you know, you checked out an episode, you liked it, and now you're listening to this one, I'm very excited, because that means that, you know, some of the dumb, dumb brain stuff that came out of my mouth wasn't too, too bad, (laughs) but anyways, for real, thank you so much for checking out the show, it means a lot, again, my name is Josh, I uh, would like to say, for those of you who don't know, I'm driving, uh, those folks who listen to my show or have been listening to my show for a while know that normally, unfortunately, I'm driving. A uh, few different reasons, mostly just because I'm poor at time management and also, you know, not rich in wealth either. So because of that, got to spend a lot of time at this job and I, uh, you know, don't use my free time as wisely as I must. But anyways, now that we got that all out of the way, I uh, I have a few things bounced around in my mind I wanted to talk about. Now, I recently got an email, and I wanted to just mention this really quick, that said, love the content, whatever, but I don't like it that you don't really have, like, a set topic that you're discussing. And I feel bad because I love those episodes. I love episodes where I'm able to pick a topic and just rattle off history and information, especially when I'm able to talk with someone else about it. Um, I love those conversations, you know, where you're able to break down, you know, certain events, certain groups, certain histories, uh, and kind of add what information each you know to, like, the conversation. It's just kind of a, a, you know, a nice experience. And, uh, you know, I really understand why that would be more appealing Um, And I have episodes like that, um, which you can check out. Uh, But the only thing is, is I don't really always take the time to plan these episodes. It's usually, if I have a guest on, you know that that episode is planned. Uh, Like I'm sitting down in my apartment somewhere with a good microphone, uh, you know, with questions on a note sheet and like, we got a plan. That doesn't happen as soon as I get in this car. Um, So if this is not the type of episode, you know, stream of consciousness you want to listen to, then that's fine. Uh, Go check out my most recent episode with Henry Huckamacki from Guerrilla History Podcast. You can check out my episode with uh, Bands of Turtle Island. You can check out uh, my episode with uh, Comrade Libre and Ramiro Sebastian Foynez of Unmasking Imperialism. You can check out my episode with uh, Black Red Guard. I've got quite a few, you know, episodes out there that um, I think are really, really good. So if that's what you're looking for, my friends, 
go scroll through that discography because there's content out there, trust me. I put shit out all the time. Uh, And it's literally just because I get into my car after reading an article or like after having, I don't know, like this morning I woke up, sat in my car and I just, or excuse me, sat in my uh, living room and I went through my uh, emails, you know, and uh, looked at who all I talked to and are trying to plan an episode with and uh, just went through and resent those emails and uh, you know had my coffee my smoke whatever and in that amount of time I just kind of have whatever thoughts are bouncing around in my head slowly but surely trying to form themselves into a coherent discussion because I like to take what I'm thinking about and discuss it with people because I don't know that's how you learn that's how you kind of grow and decide whether what your principles, ideas, or whatever are, are correct or incorrect when you, like, connect them with reality and you interchange those ideas with other people who have their own perspectives, who've lived their own reality, and you kind of measure that up against, like, what they have to say and say, all right, well, this person said that, in fact, these parts of my, you know, understanding are wrong. Um, You know, for example, like, uh, if you were to take myself, a white cishet male, and set me down in a room full of all sorts of exploited and oppressed people, there's a lot of things that I am going to be taught, and a lot of things that other people within that area or that room or wherever are going to be taught, because we don't all live the same life. And in a lot of cases, we live intentionally different lives because of certain characteristics, whether, you know, national or ethnic background, uh, class, wealth, uh, and status are, you know, kind of tied into one. Gender is a huge one as well, of course. Um, And so because we are so divided in society, Usually not even by wants or interests of our own. I mean, most of us, as far as I know, right? I have yet to meet everyone, so I can't generalize entirely. But most of us are not born racist, hateful assholes, you know? Most of us aren't born with this idea that capitalism is the best thing ever. Most of us aren't, like, born into just this understanding that imperialism is endemic to human civilization and you'll never be able to get rid of it. And so in that case, you just have to accept it and let the United States keep pillaging the world. Oh, boy, I lost my train of thought. <laughs> but anyways, in, in this sense, you know, we don't live the same lives. We're not taught things from birth, though. So that means we are eventually taught to hate different people for different reasons. We're taught that we live a certain way because of certain things and, you know, characteristics and identities that we ourselves uh, hold. Or, you know, we're taught that the world 
exists a certain way that if you do certain things, certain outcomes will come. Like, for example, if you go to school, you do well, you get a college degree, you could get a job. After you get a job, you're going to be getting a decent pay. Once you get decent pay, you're going to be able to afford a house. Once you get a house, you can have kids. Once you have kids, you can kind of like live and just be happy. Who the fuck does that happen for? Like, actually, who the fuck do you know whose life has worked to a fucking T? Like, we were all told that our lives are supposed to. But, you know, what's crazy to me is that the way in which we then understand this is that people are lazy or people didn't do what they needed to do. There's 300 and something million people here in the United States, right? On average, I'd say somewhere between 60 and 70% of those people, right, at one point or another, attended some form of, of upper education. Even if for a semester, you know, a lot of folks are able to go on grants for a year and then you know, they don't do well on grades and they lose their scholarships and that's that. And most people don't even make it to college who are in that situation, who don't come from money, who don't come from opportunities, who don't have any kind of, you know, support or assistance in society. Uh, Like, for example, myself, I got to go to school uh, on state grants because I was a foster child. But not everyone gets that, especially foster kids who don't have good grades. And the only reason why I was able to get good grades was not because I was some genius or anything, but because I had a support system, a support system that wanted me to succeed. The foster care system doesn't want these kids to succeed. These kids are meant to be fodder for what's to come. But what I am saying is that on average, you know, a genuine majority, I'd say, of like the last three generations of people attended some form of upper edu- higher education because that's what we're told we're supposed to do. That's what the economy is set up for. That's what all these different systems feed us into. It's like, you know, college, military, full-time job. Or uh, as far as, you know, any of our high school teachers were concerned, or maybe our parents, homelessness and and death. Those are the, the five options, right? And so if that's the case, most of us are going to choose college. Yet some people who choose the military for college, not understanding the whole complexity of the, you know, needing to go kill people in other countries so that you can get an economics degree, uh, Brad, you know. But I'm sure Brad isn't too fucking concerned about that because he wants to go kill people in other countries. That's another thing is... If you don't got kids who go to college and then get out of college and find out that their degrees are worthless, that they're going to be in crippling student debt for the rest of their life and that they can't find jobs that are going to help them pay for it, there's no support systems, there's no ability to erase that debt, to declare bankruptcy on it. Joe Biden in the you know 70s and 80s and multiple other uh, elected officials petitioned and passed legislation that made it so that student loan debt is essentially indentured slavery as my homie uh, Ramiro points out to me occasionally. You know, like this is one way in which after high school you're taken advantage of into adulthood. This is one way that the U.S. uh, imperialist core system takes advantage of you. The second way it takes advantage of you, right, is the military. 
Now, we all know the fucking stupid-ass kids who wanted to join the military. I'm not talking about those kids. If you and I can get one thing straight, it is the fact that if you want, like, have patriotism, interest, and a desire to join the military, I don't want to talk to you. Not at all. And not because I think that you yourself are not or whoever, you know, is in this situation, whether it's a family member or a friend or whoever. If you are right then and there in that position, thinking like that, there's not much I can say to you that's going to convince you otherwise. You have to have experiences. You have to live life. Every fucking kid I know who went into the army, I now can talk to about socialism. Why well, know why? Because the military fucking sucks. The military is atrocious. The military makes all of my friends want to kill themselves or become alcoholics or shoot dope. So that system, right, it's breaking down. It's clear that the U.S. military does not have the patriotic hold on our generation as it did the generations before us. The uh, um, enrolling numbers are way down. The amount of physical personnel within the military continues to decrease, although not at a steady enough rate for my liking. If you read the fiscal year budgets for the last, like, 10 years in the military, they've talked about the lack of soldiers and the lack of ability of soldiers to perform the tasks that they're really looking for now, now that they're looking towards more high-tech things, now that they're looking towards developing uh, control of, you know, space and being able to have uh, air control in, uh, you know, every way possible. They're talking about the fact that we have to find a way to replace them with technology. Talking about soldiers and folks, you know, because not only that, but like the American system, like global hegemony, capitalist, you know, uh, dictatorship, it's like destroyed the world. And a lot of people are at the very least like questioning that. So it's difficult to get a person in that position to join the military. But if you are someone who vehemently wanted to join the military, I probably don't have much I can say to you that's going to change your mind about that. But I would just hope that we understand as, you know, people who, you know, are conscious, are trying to raise other people's consciousness. These fuckers are what, in a lot of cases, Lenin might call peasants in uniform. Now, not so much as so anymore, because we know that the average person that goes into the military, not always from just a completely exploited background. I know, you know, in talking about how enrollment numbers have gone down, I do know quite a few kids who I went to school with who were, you know, white bread, chicken shit, uh, racist pieces of shit who either became cops and be- or became military because they wanted to go kill people. You know, they wanted to go uh, 
fight for America. Like that shit, there are people like that still. And a lot of those folks, you know, quite often, not always, and this is why it's difficult because you can't always generalize. But a lot of the kids who are like down, down, down for patriotism and shit come from often more conservative backgrounds, right? Come from often more, I won't say well-to-do, but not always necessarily poor, right? I think that's that's not a wrong thing. If you look at kids like Kyle Rittenhouse, right? Or, you know, all the the Trump supporters and folks who were there on uh, January 6th, If you look at the far right in general, a lot of them are conservative, what we might consider middle class white people. That's just kind of the demographic of people that those fucking ideas apply to. And so there's really not much that we can do to just flip the switch in a person's mind who lives like that and thinks like that and who, like, sincerely would benefit from continuing that system because they're of the classification of working-class people who gets a little bite off the end of the imperialists and capitalists, you know, scraps. But the third thing that this system does is it makes people addicted to money, makes people addicted to working, and it makes people convinced that hard work, determination, you know, no days off, not taking your own mental, physical, and emotional health seriously... Becoming, you know, your boss's lackey, just doing whatever it is you're told by your employer for whatever reason, not asking for any, you know, higher pay, not doing none of that. If you just work your fucking ass off, one day it's just going to click and you're going to become, a, you know, a millionaire. There's this mentality that a lot of people say makes Americans think that they're all temporarily disadvantaged uh, millionaires. You know, people just, even with like lotto or, you know, other things like that, oh, it's just going to be that one ticket. And then what? And then you just have more money? Will your life, I mean, in a capitalist system, your life will improve. Like, there's no question. The people who say money doesn't cause happiness... They've never been rich because, hey, they're not giving up their money now, are they? You know, if it really made them so miserable. But anyways, this system, of course, is going to benefit people who have more money, right? So people are, for a good reason, dedicated to this idea. I'm going to get some money. I'm going to get some money. They get in their bag. You know, they want to try to whatever. They want to hustle. They want to sell weed on the side. They want to fucking resell playstations there's all kinds of stuff that people do to try to make a little extra cash here and there and what does it normally amount to genuinely 
Because how many of us are in the same fucking position when it comes to bills? There, there was that statistic that went around when Bernie ran for president in 2016 where it said, you know, <clears throat> 70% of Americans, <clears throat> excuse me, couldn't afford a $400 emergency bill right now. I guarantee you 80, 90% of Americans right now couldn't afford a $200 emergency bill. I can't fucking put brakes on my car and I work 40 hours a week. But even if I got a second job, right? Because that's that's my family. That's my family. That's what they say. Well, just go get a second job, Josh. Come on. What are you doing? Just go get a second job. Go to college. Join the military. Yeah. But even if I got a second job, what does that really get me? Okay? Because quite often, it's going to destroy my social life, which will lead to a deterioration of my mental and emotional health. Depending on what kind of jobs I work, it might deteriorate my physical health. And on top of that, right, all the things that I'm going to do to to make it through, drink extra coffee, smoke extra weed, right, spend a shit ton of money on gas, never see my significant other, never see my family, right, never have time to read, never have time to record the podcast, never have time to organize. What's that really going to get me, man? It's going to make me fucking depressed. It's going to make me anxious as hell. And guess what? It does the same fucking thing to everybody. Look at your homies who work two, three part-time jobs. Look at your parents who work two part-time jobs to put food on your plate. Look at you doing the same to put food on your kid's plate. I don't know who the fuck listens to this show. Y'all don't reach out. But anyways, if we look at those people who have to work like that, almost every single one of them has completely been like, depersonalized and just is in a state of almost disassociation half the time. Now that just might be my personal experiences. I know that anxiety and depression surface in different ways. So not necessarily disassociation, maybe manic personality disorder, you know, maybe a depressive disorder that makes folks sleep all the time. It's difficult to really narrow down what specific symptoms these things cause because each one of us is different. Each one of us responds to our feelings and emotions differently. So because of that, right, what's most important to understand is not that each one of us has these certain thoughts, these certain ideas, or these certain experiences so that we can line each other up next to one another and say, okay, I'm more depressed than you or I'm more traumatized than you or I've gone through more individual awful experiences today than you did so I should be able to be mopey and miserable and you shouldn't. Those types of interactions, relationships, and experiences are bullshit, man. If we actually like want to resolve the fucking massive amount of trauma that exists. The Red Deal by Red Media talks about this explicitly and the Red Nation podcast. Go check them out. They talk about explicitly how we have to essentially socialize our trauma. Our trauma is already socialized in the fact that we're all experiencing trauma very differently from very different ways, very different reasons, right? 
but socializing the resolution of that trauma. Because if we each take on our individual trauma, our individual issues, our individual struggles as individuals, we're almost always likely to fail. Because these are systems and structures that have been set up for you to fail. Marx and Engels talked about it so far back as 1842. You know, the worker becomes depressed. He never feels himself when he's at work and he is never anywhere except for work. When he's at home, he is asleep. And when he is at work, he is not himself. So he drinks, he does drugs, you know, and I'm using he because this is paraphrasing. I guess I really shouldn't do that. But people will become essentially an appendage of the machine as people, you know, might have heard the expression but not really understood the depths to which this was really meant. And then when you add on top of all of this, right, how incredibly expensive life is, how little we are provided as human beings in one of the wealthiest nations to ever exist in human history. We don't have houses guaranteed to us as human beings who need shelter from the weather. We don't have food guaranteed to us as a human right, as human beings who need food, need nutrients, need sustenance to survive. We don't have clean water protected and guaranteed to each and every individual on this earth as a human right, even though we very well could do so because it is more profitable to sanction off, to cut off access to resources, whether that be education, whether that be uh, social funding, whether that be healthcare, whether that be food, whether that be clean drinking water, whether that be housing, whether that be, you know, sustainable ecosystems, whether that be, uh, you know, well oriented and organized public health system. None of these things exist in the United States, one of the richest countries in the world. Now I know, okay, that's, United States is still far wealthier than any other nation by a light year, at least. If you think that China, right, for example, now that their GDP just overcame the United States, is the wealthiest country in the world, let's talk about this. Since 1949, the Chinese people have been having their revolution. In 2020, I believe, abject poverty was destroyed, was finally abolished. This past year, their GDP surpassed the United States. So that's one year that they have been above the United States. The United States, since 1945, has been the wealthiest country in the world, the largest military power in the world, the most organized and militant social and political structure that dominated the globe economically, financially, militarily, I said economically and financially. Anyways, we're going to skip that. Socially, politically, uh, 
They dominated the resources. They dominated the environment. They dominated everything. Since 1945, four years before the Chinese people even began their socialist revolution. So, in that time, the amount of wealth that the United States has been able to accumulate and send to offshore accounts to give to politicians who have lived and died to throw away to the OSS, to the CIA, to the Pentagon, even though the Pentagon failed its third audit. All of that combined still exists. So all of that wealth that's been accumulated for almost 80 years is still in the hands of the United States. The United States is far wealthier than any other country in the world by a long shot. So in that sense, we must understand, for example, that the move recently to basically completely allow Joe Manchin and Kirsten Cinema to tank the Build Back Better bill, or what was coined the Build Back Basic bill by one of the incredible guests that has been on by any means necessary with Jackie Lukeman and Sean Blackman, who I still have yet to remember the name of. So I sincerely apologize to this person whose take and analysis of the Build Back Better bill was incredible and is really guiding a majority of the way that I look at this bill now. And it's really frustrating. I can never remember her name. Anyways, um, it's quite monumental to know this, right, about the wealth of the United States. And think about it in this context. Like, for example, what, like, imperial... I'm not trying to get off on a rant imperialism, right, is the domination of another nation's wealth, resources, economy, industry, transportation, and labor force. Everything involved in the production of commodities in another nation is owned and dominated by the ruling class of an outside nation. That's imperialism. Now, if one country right, has over 800 military bases across the world, and one country dominates in the United Nations, NATO, uh, um, AUKUS, that stupid fucking, uh, nuclear proliferation deal that the UN is pretending is not a nuclear proliferation deal between, uh, you know, the, uh, Australian, UK, and US governments, and then you got all kinds of other, you know, you got, like, AFRICOM, which was really headed by Barack Obama to completely destroy the African continent by taking control of it through puppet regimes and others just the same way they did to Latin America and Asia. All of these different things, right, dominated by one country, United States, right, for like 80 plus years. Okay. Now that country is telling you that it doesn't have money to give you free health care. That country is telling you that it does not have the money to give you free education. That is absolute bullshit. That is bullshit that really... It's so obvious that... You know, a lot of us get frustrated having to talk about it all the time, but that's our job. You, If you get frustrated about explaining all this political stuff to people, folks, what are we going to do when we need to actually get people to organize and do something? You're just going to sit there and yell at them? 
Anyways, um, it's important to understand that in this sense, you know, the tanking of the Build Back Better bill, and essentially it was blamed on Kirsten Cinema and Joe Manchin, but really, as Sean Blackman from By Any Means Necessary pointed out multiple times, how is it that you have a whole Democratic Party and two people can do whatever the fuck they want and there's no, like, clap back? There's no, like, snap into, like, formation? You can't get them to do what the majority... Well, and then again, the majority of the party wanted this. That's why they didn't snap them into action. That's why they didn't call them out and say what they were doing was wrong. Was because only a minuscule amount of the Democratic Party genuinely, you know, came out and said that they didn't want this to happen. And of those, you know, people, they're still in the Democratic Party, which I don't understand. Um, If Bernie Sanders and AOC are these supposed radicals and revolutionaries, why the fuck do they not, you know, start a third party or join one that already fucking exists? Oh, yeah, that's because they're Democrats. Democrats through and through. Democrats in the truest liberal way, which is, we got all these nice words to say. We got all these nice ideas we're going to pretend that we want. But at the end of the day, we're just going to side with the Republicans. And if you question us, we're just going to blame it on the Republicans or we're going to blame it on an individual Democrat. And guess what? We all fucking fall for it almost every time. But anyways... The tanking of the Build Back Better plan, right? Essentially taking it from a three-plus trillion dollar bill to a $1.1 trillion bill, which will be spent over 10 years. So people who are talking to you about this need to understand that as well. Because the $798 billion that's being spent for the military this year, that's not a big deal. That's barely away from $1.1 trillion, but nobody's batting in an eye. Anyways, $7.98 billion. Where does that number come from? Well, originally, it was going to be $740 billion. Then they decided, here you go, guys. Here's $58 billion you didn't ask for. And also, we're not going to do the Build Back Better bill. Do you think there's a fucking formula here? Do you think there's a reason why it's done this way? Again, all of these systems are set up and predicated to fucking destroy us. They're set up and predicated to make it so that we can't fucking do what we need to do to A, survive in a lot of cases, B, not be taken advantage of, C, you know, really fight and and struggle and win to change the material circumstances we live in, and really, you know, at the end of the day also, we don't have any conscious understanding in a lot of cases of these problems because we're misinformed, miseducated, brainwashed, exploited, oppressed, divided among ourselves, meant to hate one another, poor, without resources, without opportunities, worked to death, addicted to drugs, depressed and anxious out of our minds, uh, with only the ability to, you know, survive if we either A join the military, B, go to college and get lucky, or C, work ourselves to death. And none of those are actually benefiting us in the long run. They are 100% benefiting 
the ruling class. They are 100% benefiting the bourgeoisie, the capitalists and the imperialists. But they are not benefiting us. They are making batteries out of us. They are making us into tools for the machine. They are making us into appendages of the machine. But my friends, really, we have to understand that there is hope. There is hope. There is hope beyond belief. And there is hope in active, growing, developing, and, you know, fighting peoples right now. If you look at Nicaragua, if you look at Venezuela, if you look at Cuba and Bolivia, if you look at China and Vietnam and the Democratic People's Republic of Korea, if you look at all of these places that are fighting right now, even non-socialist states in CELAC, right? Even non-socialist states in Africa who just do not want to be taken advantage of by the neoliberal, you know, neo-colonial system that is uh, capitalism imperialism. You have genuinely revolutionary sentiments in some of the oddest places because these are colonized, imperialized, oppressed and exploited people. These are the folks who need to be in the forefront of our struggle for liberation, for socialism, and for an end to the military-industrial complex, an end to the militarized global imperialist system, an end to the world capitalist system, and an end to exploitation everywhere. It can will and only will succeed if the exploited and oppressed people are able to be a part of, lead, guide, and fight alongside us and that we fight alongside them in solidarity and support in a way that we are not making our mission their mission. We are not taking advantage of their struggle for our goals and objectives. We have to understand that although we might have a fantastic analysis of socialism, we might have a genuine revolutionary and theoretical uh, understanding of national liberation. But if we ourselves are not actively involved with the people, engaging with the people, watching and following the leadership of the people and listening to what it is the people need and trying to meet those needs for the people, what is it that we're doing? What is it that we are trying to achieve? That's what's, that's what Christians do. That's what evangelicals do. They went around the world. They pretended like they cared about poor people. They're still doing it now. Pretended they cared about hunger. Pretended they cared about suffering that mostly they caused or their ancestors caused or their countries of origin caused or their beliefs caused or their, you know, capitalist, uh, you know, sentiments and economic base caused. And then they go around and they build churches. They build, 
you know, all these different kinds of uh, residential schools for folks who don't know the Salvation Army, Army and the Catholic Church, as well as the Protestant Church, were two of the most endemic and, you know, influential uh, groups behind residential schools all across the United States and Canada. Um, especially on the West Coast, Salvation Army led that shit. And of course, we all know now what the Salval is all about. So fucking, here's here's my point. Here, here's what I'm going through. We got all these different groups like nonprofits as well. Um, Kwame uh, Nkrumah um, and, uh, you know, many others since have shown quite clearly how nonprofits, uh, 501Cs, how all these different religious groups, all these different, uh, you know, state-led organizations and committees, all these, you know, special foundations like the Heritage uh, Foundation, USAID, um, the, uh, there's all kinds of groups like this that are used by imperialism, again, to further take control of the wealth, the resources, and especially the ideology of the people. Because these nonprofits go in to these communities. There's one being built in a city very close to me. They come with these ideas of like, you know, if you are uh, poor and uh, you're struggling, what you really need to do is you need to learn how to uh, build a business. You need to build a small business, right? So they'll, they, they set up like this business class or they'll convince you that, you know, again, you got to join the military or something like that. But anyways, these nonprofits, these different groups, they're not revolutionary. They do not actually change the material conditions for these people. In fact, they oftentimes perpetuate the already existing material conditions uh, that have led to the poverty, the deterioration of society, and the utter, almost enslavement of colonized and imperialized people. Look at uh, Hawaii. Look at Red Hill. This is something I wanted to talk about really badly. The US, plain and simple, U.S. Navy, get the fuck out of uh, Oahu. Get the fuck out. Uh, many, many people... Many activists, many organizers, and many indigenous and native people of the island are saying, we never asked you to come here. You were never a guest here. You invaded. You came and took over this space. You saw Pearl Harbor. You wanted it, and you took it. You killed us. You destroyed our land. You're poisoning our water. Remove the gas. Remove the gas tanks and get the fuck out. Plain and simple. Shut down Red Hill for good. United States Navy needs to demilitarize. The entire island needs to be rid of anything to do with U.S. imperialism, including nonprofits, churches, all other groups that come from the United States and are used by the imperialists to take over these nations. I'm reading this book, right? And I've talked about it before. It's called... Um, OSS, The Secret History of the First uh, uh, Central Intelligence Agency. Of America's First Central Intelligence Agency. Sorry, I just had to peek at the, the front. But anyways, in reading this book, I've taken down every fucking name. 
every single name I've taken down. And any kind of association, group, or bio that they're, they have, that they're given, um, I write down right next to it. Eight times out of ten, these people are professors from Yale, from Harvard, from Columbia University, from Cornell, from the University of Michigan, from Massachusetts School. Uh, you know, out of the other two, 0.5 owned Times Magazine, owned Chicago Tribune, were a part of, you know, uh, New York Times, were a part of LA Times. Another decent percentage of these people were missionaries. Missionaries that were essentially tapped on the shoulder and said, we need you to do espionage while you're there being a missionary. Then you also had, uh, you know, former military officials. You also had um, a lot of uh, wealthy people's kids. Like some of the founding members, some of the first agents of the OSS were like J.P. Morgan's kid. Rockefeller's kid, um, and I think even Bill Donovan's kid himself. I, I can't confirm that, but this is this is the fact that neo-colonialism, imperialism, is not just explicit occupation. It's a complete domination of the entire nation itself, so that the people can never have self-determination, so that the people can never have autonomy, and the people can never have their own. Uh, you know, governance. They can't ever have their own sovereignty. This is what indigenous peoples all over the world talk about. We, you know, need to listen. We need to actually learn and we need to do the things that oppressed and exploited people have demanding us do for so long. And I mean that for real. Us supposed allies and our, you know, white comrades, non you know, uh, black, brown, or indigenous folks, uh, uh, all these people that have a way to live in society, right, that isn't as doubly, triply, or quadruply as exploitative as non-white, non-men do, we need to play our role to sweep the legs of the empire from within the belly of the beast, from within the circles that normally would be developing what Howard Zinn calls its prison guards. We need to overthrow the system, and to do so, we need to play our role as well. We cannot leave it to exploit and oppress people to keep on fighting by themselves. Not to say, right, not to say that white folks aren't exploited, right? Because white working class people exist all across the world. They are exploited. They are taken advantage of by the capitalist imperialist system. But at the same time, we also know that that very capitalist and imperialist system developed certain subterfuges, such as race, such as, you know, gender-based oppression, patriarchy, such as, you know, uh, very many different forms of repressive tactics that are meant to separate the working class. So in that way, we cannot ignore the contradictions and the realities that exist for indigenous people or for black folks or for immigrants and Latinos and folks down in the Caribbean and, you know, Asian people and exploited and, you know, oppressed folks of all walks of life cannot be ignored at any rate. And so in that way, if we actually want to 
develop a movement that can see and meet the needs of exploited and oppressed people all over the world, well, maybe we ought to start by talking to them and organizing with them and going to demonstrations to support them. And, you know, it seems, it seems as if, you know, I might be coming on here and in some cases, might people find it disingenuous that like, I'm, I'm trying to talk about this, like I know being, you know, that I've listened to a few folks and, and, and now I feel that I know everything that I need to know. I, one of the most important things I'm trying to stress in my own life, as we've been talking about when it comes to trying to get guests on the show, is that I am really desperately trying to get people and talk with people and engage with people in organizations who are doing work across the world and, you know, really engaged in struggles that I myself am not and, you know, really cannot be at the moment or in some cases really at all, you know? Should I or anyone in my position be, you know, attempting to take any kind of leading role in the freedom and liberation of, you know, other people, of other folks whose whose lives white people for generations and, and generations have destroyed? Do we really think that then that's, that's an appropriate approach? I, I can't say that I believe that white folks should not be involved in any capacity in the liberation of non-white people. We have to play the supportive role of, you know, being the white folks to take out other white folks. But at the same time, we can't do that of our own, you know, decision. We can't just decide one day that, all right, this is how we're going to, this is how we're going to free black people in America. Um, because really, <laughs> black people are already doing that, you know? Black, brown, indigenous people are already out on the streets. They're already organizing. They're already fighting. They've been engaged in movements for hundreds of thousands, you know, hundreds and thousands of years in some cases, in some ways. And so because of that, we really have to essentially get in line. Like, if you want to actually participate in... Uh, you know, being a part of a movement like that, there's no, there's definitely no harm in that. But you have to realize what role you play. Not everybody can play the same role. For example, if, uh, you know, let's say revolution popped off tomorrow, just hypothetically. And let's say they said, Josh, we're going to need you to lead, uh, this group of soldiers into this city and you're you're going to be a commander <laughs> there's no way that's an intelligent decision it's just plainly not the correct decision wanna know why i've barely even ever shot a gun and i really know nothing about military strategy so sorry sarge you know and i also don't know how military rankings go so if i'm a commander and they're a sergeant i don't know who's talking to who here anyways as you can tell, I get distracted easily. My point being this, if also in the same way, they told me, Josh, we need to set up a testing location in this community 
because there are no testing locations locally. I would have no idea who to get a hold of, where to get, you know, different things from. I wouldn't know uh, how to convince nurses or really anyone to come down there and work. I wouldn't know how to organize it. I wouldn't know who to get in contact with to even get the equipment to, to test the stuff, who to send it to, you know? So in the same way, it wouldn't be correct or the right choice for me to play that role. But there is a role that I and every single one of you, every single one of the exploited and oppressed people on this earth has a role to play in the fight for international proletarian liberation. But we do have to understand how to go about doing that. We have to understand how to have interpersonal and interconnected relations. We have to understand the structures that exist, how they oppress people, how they exploit people, who they exploit and oppress, and how we benefit from that exploitation and oppression. And on top of that, we also need to know how to organize against it. We have to know what kind of repressive tactics it will take when we try to organize against it. We have to understand it in and out, the system, where it came from, its history, who's tried to fight it before, how they tried to fight it before, have they succeeded, have they failed, have they been killed, have they gone to prison, you know, do they work for the state now? <laughs> All these different questions we have to know, and then we have to get with each other. We have to say, okay, here's what we have, what do you have, okay, how can we work together to try to make this work? We've all done, you know, class projects, and when you actually get fucking kids who don't want to fail, who are willing to do the bare fucking minimum, it's pretty easy to get a decent grade in a group project, because you don't have to do all the work yourself. This is the appeal to socialism in a socialist revolution, is that, in fact, a true class struggle is not led by one group, it is not led by one small, uh, you know, leadership or vanguard out of the majority, it is led, in fact, by the groups from different communities who are assisting these communities, who are helping to lead and ultimately succeeding in leading these different communities towards developing changes and making material gains for themselves. But at the same time, for example, one can, I would say, historically and correctly say that the Black Panther Party was the vanguard at a point in time in the United States of America for the fight for black liberation. But if we are leading a struggle for black liberation, as well as Latino liberation, as well as gay, trans, bisexual, lesbian, and other uh, you know, liberation, while also leading a fight for, you know, disabled uh, and otherly abled uh, liberation, while also leading a fight for Asian liberation, while also leading a fight for international and indigenous liberation, then we cannot say that the Black Panther Party would be the one and only vanguard of a struggle like that. I think we can all agree on that. Would that seem likely? Would that seem, you know, the best option? Maybe not. But in the same way, then we have to understand, okay, well, then what do we do? 
Well, what did the Black Panthers do? What did Martin Luther King do? Look at some of the last things he was doing in his life. He was bringing all different kinds of groups together. What was Fred Hampton doing? What was Kwame Ture doing? What was Huey P. Newton doing? What was all of these different groups doing? They were getting in contact with the Young Lords. They were getting in contact with the Brown Berets. They were making connections with the disabled community. They were making connections with the gay community. They were making connections with, you know, even white working class folks. And so in that way, we have to understand, okay, how did they try to do it? What happened? What can we do to learn from that? How can we gain from history by just plainly learning it? Because we can take in the knowledge that is able to be developed through historical and materialist analysis and use that as a dialectical development, right? because you understand the relations between things, you understand how they've developed, you understand how they've developed in relation, and we can take out of that a strategy, and ultimately also on a more individual, uh, day-to-day, event-to-event basis, tactical analysis of, okay, what needs to be done? Who needs to do it? Who do we need to be talking to? Who can we connect with, right? That's a huge fucking important thing. One of the first things that Lenin really wrote, and and not to just speak about Lenin like he's the only one, but Lenin's someone who I think a lot of folks should check out. Huey P. Newton does the same thing when he talks in Revolutionary Suicide about who it is that he is living his life for and who it is that he's living his life as a fight against. You have to first understand who the fuck your friends are. Who's going to fight beside you? Who's going to fight for you? And who's going to fight against you? How are they going to do it? How are their groups composed? Who is supportive of that? Who benefits from that? Ultimately, what class benefits from these groups? What is the class character of these different groups? From this point forward, you can develop a tactic and a strategy which you otherwise would probably be incapable of doing. And if you did it, quite possibly, you would be wrong. On top of all of this, we also have to be organized. Like, okay, here's the last thing I really got to say, and then we'll close it out. We've talked about this before. You get all these individual groups who are doing these incredible works, right? You got mutual aid networks feeding people. You got self-defense groups teaching all kinds of people how to defend themselves. You got speak outs about COVID, about domestic abuse, about police brutality, about labor rights, like the Amazon Labor Union. You got all kinds of community organizations like the, the, the Gambian community organization that has been helping a lot of the victims of the Bronx fire that recently burned uh, apartment building down and killed um, uh, 17 people, including um, eight children. You can, you know, look and see that there are groups out there that are doing work. But if we're all just out here doing work for ourselves and we're not able to connect with one another and we don't have any kind of, you know, I hate to use this word, but like, diplomacy. We don't have any solidarity. We don't fucking talk to one another. 
how are we going to be able to each con you know consciously and and correctly impact the struggles that we're facing if we're trying to each take them on alone we're going to be isolated we are going to be able to be attacked in a way that if we had fought together we wouldn't we have to understand my friends that we need a true class struggle we have to connect the broadest bases and the most amount of people as we can and my friends we have to do it quickly because the earth is dying people are dying and the repression the exploitation the quote authoritarianism and also the capitalist imperialist system are fighting tooth and nail every single day to survive. We cannot do anything other than this. Long live the revolution, my friends. Go get organized, let's get militant, let's get fighting, and let's get struggling. Long live the people. All power to the people. And I hope you have a lovely day. Stay safe, stay healthy, and stay revolutionary, folks. We'll see you next time. Peace.